Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? And the second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Thanks for listening to Restoring the Soul. Today we celebrate the 100th episode of the podcast. I'm Davis the Intern here to say congratulations to Michael and the team and give a special shout out to Fiji, where Restoring the Soul is the number one listened to Christian podcast. Keep up the great work, guys. (laughs) Thanks, Davis. And yes, congratulations are definitely in order as we present to you episode number 100 of Restoring the Soul. We've had almost 300,000 downloads over the last couple years, and it's been quite the journey. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. I've been here for every podcast. Some of my favorites include conversation about music and faith with Rob Mathis, uh, Dan Allender, Lisa Turkhurst, John Eldridge, and Philip Yancey. There are so many great conversations, too many to list out here. I do hope you can dig into our archives, take a listen, and then share them with your friends. Now, today we're continuing our five-part series on how the Enneagram can strengthen your marriage or intimate relationship. Michael's Restoring the Soul colleague is Kelly Gray. She's our resident expert on the Enneagram. Now, part two will focus on how to resolve conflict with your partner, where part one showed us how to become an expert in our spouse or partner. And now, without further ado, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. We are here in our five-part series, The Enneagram and Marriage, and we are kicking off episode number two, Five Ways the Enneagram Can Strengthen Your Marriage or Intimate Relationship, and I'd like to welcome back Kelly Gray. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Love it. Great conversation the first time about becoming an expert in your partner, and hopefully the questions and categories that we discussed were helpful for people to think about their relationship, if not to sit down and actually have some different conversations. Um, So, Kelly, give an overview of the Enneagram, and -hmm. I don't want you to go through the nine numbers. Mm -hmm. We're going to assume that that is available in other places and books and things like that that we will recommend. But just a, a description about what the Enneagram is, and then I know that you've used it in your work with couples as a framework. 
And I'm curious um, why that is the case and mm-hmm. what, what you've seen. So just a description to start. Yeah, the Enneagram is um, it, it's a personality temperament typing system. So it um, it has nine different types that describe just nine different um, temperaments of humans. So they're just kind of the prototypes, I say, that God that God made. And so people are familiar with um, other types of temperament classifications, like the Myers Briggs, um, the the Disc, even Strengths Finder. Um, is getting after a lot of these categories. Which one is the golden retriever and the otter? I mean, that was mm-hmm. a that was a ripoff of the Myers Briggs, really basically. Was, yeah. mm-hmm. Mammals applied to the the mammal Briggs typology mm-hmm. indicator mm-hmm. was that. Yeah. But I digress. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. But okay. people get the idea when you say golden retriever, otter, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So the Enneagram has nine different types, and yeah, those are um, you can really extensively study those different numbers. Um, And the reason why I love using it in my work with couples is because um, it's a bit of a shortcut in understanding the wiring of this person that you have committed to spend your entire life with and that you are signing up for a lifetime with and you want to to be able to bring them joy and know them well and understand them well. And when you can learn their Enneagram number, it can give you so many little, um, just little backroads of understanding their wiring and their, their complexity that could otherwise really take you a very long time to learn. So a shortcut to understanding how they see the world, how they feel, how they think, how they connect and attach, what motivates them, and really helping them understand the essence of who mm-hmm. their person is that they're with. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, I'm not promoting thinking that you totally have your partner 100% figured out if you read their number. Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. Um, as you study their number, um, I say do that with a very open hand and um run everything you learn by them. So is this really the way that you um, you see the world? Do you think this way? Do you feel that way? Is this what bothers you the most? So I'm, I'm a big proponent of being very open-handed and not at all treating somebody's Enneagram number like, um, like you, you truly have that person totally figured out. It's just a, it's just a very helpful guide and map. And for the person who does think they have their spouse or partner <laughs> totally figured out, mm-hmm. they probably ought to go to counseling and mm-hmm. talk about why that is. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have five different ways that you have uh, proposed that the Enneagram can help couples in counseling and in therapy. And what's the first way that you want to share that it can be helpful? The Enneagram really can help you understand how you and your partner do conflict um, differently because um, oftentimes as we are growing up and we are fighting it out or avoiding fighting it out with our families of origin, we grow up and we get married and we kind of seem to intermarriage with the assumption that um, that our partner is going to do conflict the same way that we do conflict. And um, most of us are very surprised to find that they do it pretty differently. And you're speaking about doing conflict. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's an assumption that some people actually do conflict mm-hmm. because there's a whole style where people say, I don't do conflict. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, those would be the um, the more withdrawn types. Um, so some of the numbers on the Enneagram, the fours and fives and nines um, can tend to withdraw and to take their big feelings and um, and kind of retreat with those. Um, not all fours will connect with me saying that. Um, but when things are um, kind of painful or difficult for those those three types of people, we aren't going to rush to the front. I say we, since I'm a nine, I'll come out of the closet there. Um, but then there are the assertive types. And so the sevens, eights, and threes that um, they're thoughts and their emotions, it's just so much quicker. It's on the tip of their tongue. They lean in, they lean forward. They they can process very rapidly. Um, like, let's jump in and in get, get this talked about and then kind of move on. Yes, yes. If they had it their way, and this is being very general, um, then they would just want to kind of push through, duke it out right away. And so if you've got an assertive type and then a more like retreating passive aggressive type, oh man, they can really not understand why the other person is made the way they're made the way they're made and not understand um why the the fights are just not productive um and they're never getting to a place of resolution. And what is the third group because it sounds like you talked about a person that withdraws uh the style that kind of gets in there and wants to mix it up is there mm -hmm. a third pattern there certainly is and that that is the um the dependent stance and those are ones twos and sixes and the in the dependent stance um they have an automatic default to kind of checking in on the other person taking taking the temperature of people around them and um seeing how things impact the other person and so they're a little bit more in between. Are these at all correlated? And I don't want to go off on a whole rabbit trail, but are they correlated to attachment styles? Because it sounds like that might be the case. Yeah, they really are correlated with the attachment styles of move towards, move away from, move against. Um, and yeah. also in attachment theory, what's often called anxious attachment, that might be the dependent avoidant attachment would be the moving uh, withdrawn, the, withdrawn, mm -hmm. and then the secure would be the against. Mm, mm. No, I would say the. Uh, you know, that's a great question because I'd say in their less healthy, average kind of default state, the assertive would be an aggressive move against, whereas secure would be a more grounded and intentional responding from kind of like the grounded true self, which I say, I'm so glad you, you've brought this thought to me because I say we only, I study the Enneagram and I encourage others to study the Enneagram so that we can transcend our default modes that are usually just kind of our egos running the show to keep us kind of at a more comfortable equilibrium. But when, and Jesus was not uh, Jesus does not have an Enneagram number. He was a, a true self, a perfect human. And so we have to be able to catch ourselves in the act of having a conflict style, like move towards, move away, move against, in order to transcend that and get to um, a more true self response of, of bringing our presence and an open heart and open mind. Um, and that's what I would call the more secure 
attachment. So if I'm hearing you correctly, that any of the nine numbers can have a secure attachment, but it's uh, being connected to the essence and mm-hmm. the healthy, true aspect of that number. Yep, you got it. Okay. And really, Jesus doesn't have an Enneagram number. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I did. Somebody Didn't somebody say, one of the theorists, that God is in, in some ways like all nine of the numbers and that that's that's this idea of wholeness. Yes, the um, the enneagram is the face of God, and also it's, I would also say the body of Christ. So you have to see more about foot. that. What the enneagram being the face of God? Yeah, and we'll probably at least get three or four uh, negative emails saying that we believe God is the enneagram. But no, that's mm. really intriguing, and mm-hmm. I want to hear more of your reflections. That's the face of God mm. and the body of Christ. That is more from the um, the use of the enneagram in spiritual direction, and it's more kind of mystical roots and uses there that um, it really is these nine different facets of the image of God specifically manifested in people, and we all need each other. And we are all bringing something. We, we all have positive motivations from our core. So each of the nine numbers is up to something positive that they're trying to accomplish. Um, and working together when we're all functioning well, it's a beautiful picture of, of the body of Christ. It's so fascinating. It, I just had a light come out of my head. You said uh, that each of the nine numbers represents somebody being up to something positive. Mm-hmm. And in certain circles, and maybe on the pop level, I hear people going, oh, you're a four, or you're a seven, or you're mm-hmm. a two. And it's always the focus on what's wrong or the negative side, like, oh, you're a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. When in reality, if I'm having brain surgery, I want that person to be a perfectionist. Absolutely. So there's a there's a positive reach and energy there. Yeah, that it's so important to. Um, so the Enneagram Institute, Russ Hudson calls them the holy ideas, and so the holy motivation that is behind each of those nine numbers. So yes, whether for um, righteousness and all things being right and perfect and upright and functioning well, so that in the one, yes, ones can certainly get teased for being rigid and they they sure can be when they're when they're struggling but it's so important when you're studying the enneagram to hold what the beautiful intent of the heart is that's behind and underneath all of those behaviors because it's when we start to struggle that the ego really is kind of just trying to manufacture that original beautiful expression from god so we hadn't planned on this i'm going to put you on the spot let's run through the holy idea or the positive reach for each of the nine numbers. And you can start wherever you want. Okay, yeah. For type one, um, they were created by God to to bring order and goodness. Type two, connection and love. Threes, value and worth. Fours, authenticity and individuality. Fives, clarity and autonomy. Sixes, awareness and loyalty. Sevens, freedom and joy. Eights, strength and presence. Nines, harmony and wholeness. Wow, that's cool. So it's easy for me now to hear 
what you meant by the body of Christ, that the nine numbers represent that and the face of God. Would it also be true, as you read through those, that every person, regardless of what their primary number is, has aspects of each of the other eight numbers? Yes, we all have all nine numbers inside of us. We really can, most of us can relate to all the other numbers. We have experiences that are very representative of those numbers. So let's say that I achieve something. Maybe the day I walked across the stage at Denver Seminary and got my master's in counseling diploma was a real three moment. I just felt this beautiful value and and worth and um, the culmination of working really hard to accomplish something um, that I was Did you hear Rocky music in your head? No. Do you want to know what I thought about when I walked across that stage? What? I said, thank you, God, that I did not marry a pastor. <laughs> because you were graduating seminary. Exactly. And then guess what I did two years later? You married a pastor. That's truth. Wow. Mm-hmm. Better be careful what you thank God for. No doubt. But I remember uh, you were in one of my very first classes I taught at mm-hmm. Denver Seminary on mm-hmm. 9-11, the mm-hmm. 9-11. Yeah. And so congratulations. You graduated. I totally did. And yes. now you're working at Restoring the Soul. Mm-hmm. So happy to be here. Love it. Um, thank you for clarifying those nine numbers and how it relates to God and ourselves. Um, that may be a new idea for some that we're all all nine numbers. And for me, it helps me to look at God more holistically, and it helps me to understand what it means to be made in his image as a two and with all those other different numbers. Mm-hmm. Coming back to conflict, because mm-hmm. that's the topic of this episode yep. of the Enneagram and marriage, um, you've talked about why you use the Enneagram in your work and how it can help couples to understand how their partner does conflict. But once they understand how their partner does conflict, then what? Yeah. Um, Then when you have identified, okay, so I'll just talk about my own marriage because it's the one I've worked on the most. When we discovered, so he is a, he's in the dependent stance of a one and, but ones can be very assertive too. So as you, as you look into the Enneagram, you, you learn more little nuances like that, that are helpful. So he cares a whole lot about what's going on with me and notices um, what's going on with me. And I am in the withdrawing stance. And so I can pull way back and be passive aggressive if um, if I'm not owning that something's going on with me. And so that can help couples kind of brainstorm for good solutions for how to meet in the middle, how to kind of accommodate both of their natural Bents because then they can get through the issue and be productive with it a little bit faster. So a few interventions that I have come up with um, that can work with differently matched types. One, I call it schedule the fight. And it's where you, um, you know, you've got something that you need to talk about. One person might have their thoughts all lined up, you know, if they're more assertive. Um, gosh, those sevens, if you're fighting with a seven, they know what they want to say. It is so impressive to me. I like to just kind of watch them. Um, so, but scheduling it is where, um, you both own something's going on and that it needs to get talked about, but the kind of more internal processor, like I referenced in the last podcast, um, or the withdrawing stance or some of the people in the the dependent stance, they will need some time to, to think about it. And so they can give, 
um, a time suggestion of can we talk about it in 20 minutes? Can we talk about it in 24 hours? Can we talk about it on our road trip this weekend? Um, but just so long as they put it at a particular date in the future and not just kind of um, shove it under the rug, which, as you know, is um, a favorite, favorite natural marital intervention of just ignoring it and hoping that it will go away. So I call that schedule the fight. And the person who needs the longer amount of time has to set the time. And I say that they need to bring it back up again. Um, And when you say set the time, you mean the date out on the horizon as opposed to open-ended? Because I was going to ask you mm -hmm. about, isn't there research that says that when couples fight or have an argument for a duration of time, I've heard that after 30 minutes, things basically decompensate and nothing good happens after that. Yeah, that's a different category I would talk about where I... um that's just some good conflict housekeeping that I give people around getting flooded because when we're kind of flooded and we've got lots of feelings and our nervous systems are all upset, if we just keep on going on and on and on and on, then nothing productive is happening. So it's a little bit of a different intervention, but that's extremely important, especially if we had two assertive types that um, we're wanting to hash through it. And what I find with the assertive types is they're typically trying really hard to get to a feeling of satisfaction and it's just not going to come when they are are both flooded so yeah I'm, I'm not at all a believer in having these several hour long fights that people can come in reporting to me and by flooded you mean emotionally flooded and physiologically flooded where there's anxiety people are feeling overwhelmed angry shut down numbed, escalated, withdrawn, but in a way where something in their body has overtaken them. Absolutely. Yep. They've totally lost the ability to be grounded and present with their with their partner. And it's only from that place of grounded presence that we really have a chance of of seeing the other person and really productively moving through. So I interrupted with that question. Okay. Thanks for that response. Sure. Uh, the first one was schedule the fight. What's mm-hmm. the other one? We got a couple more. Um I will recommend to people with just totally different um, conflict styles to have a journal that they write to one another. They make an entry in the journal addressed to the other person and can put it on the other person's nightstand. And they work on communicating in that way. I have even encouraged couples to email each other because I'm just not big on any... If we have some idealized view of how we are supposed to do things in our marriage, oftentimes by the time somebody gets to my therapy couch, we need to have um, kind of checked those at the door and say, all right, let's just talk about what works. You've tried to do all these things that haven't necessarily worked. So sometimes not even trying to hash it out in the same room together, but email. How, How do you find that that works? Because I would imagine that people can fire off an email uh, I think we, we know intuitively that sharing your frustrations in a relationship are not good for texting. But do people generally um, take the time to be reflective and as thoughtful with that? Well, I mean, if I'm really like holding their hand and helping them walk through it, um, then, yeah. I mean, if they bring thoughtful, reflective presence to it, yeah, I'm definitely not encouraging people to just fire off an angry email unless somebody is so repressed and so unable to use their voice that they just need to kind of get the ball rolling. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what else? Okay. I say really watch body language. This is especially with the drawing types. I have an embarrassing example of this. Um, 
my husband and I were trying to make a decision about, I mean, it might've been something really simple. I think it was where to go to dinner. And I had um, an unspoken hope that we would go to a particular place. He said, you know, I just really don't want to go to that place um, and said the name. My shoulder like dipped down and away from him. I mean, it was weird. My body had this really kind of turning away from him, cold shoulder kind of response to him. And literally what came out of my mouth was, I don't care. I laughed and said, I think my body cares. And he said, I totally saw that that was super weird. So we can really get a lot of information out of watching the body language of our partners. And listeners are dying to know, did you or did you not go to where you wanted to go? Um, I think that we did go to where I want to go. Okay. And we I cannot do. say the name of that establishment right. due to Federal Trade really Commission. It would really unfair yeah, to federal promote trade, them. Yep. Mm-hmm. We could be exponentially increasing their mm-hmm. business by saying that on totally. this international podcast. Absolutely, yeah. Are there other ways that once you know the conflict style uh, that, practically speaking, you can resolve conflict or use that conflict as a as a bridge to connecting yeah i mean i think what i'm really wanting to get across to people about using the enneagram is that i think that the enneagram is going to show you that your partner is going to kind of have a scripted automatic response to you and um if you hang in there and you don't get totally triggered by that um then you're going to be able to move through your conflict more quickly. But we kind of all have these automatic defenses that come up. So if mine's passive aggressive and um, several of the numbers, um, they're going to have an immediate defensiveness. And when you can say, all right, I can have a little bit of acceptance of some defensiveness. I'm going to be patient with it and not meet their defensiveness with, um, with increased firepower, but be patient with their defensiveness because like in the example of a one, they work so hard to do things the right way that when you bring a criticism to them, it's kind of shocking to their system because they really try so hard to do things right for you. And so um, when you can kind of weather that, you really are able to get down to, okay, so now can I tell you what's going on with me? Are your ears open? Are you able to hear it? That's really good. Uh, Julianne is a one and I'm a two. And so I want to caretake and not admit my own needs. And there is this part of her where she tries really hard to be right and to do right and to be good and in really good ways. And one of the things I've had to learn is to let her vent and to not have to evaluate if it's right or wrong. In the early years, it would be, hey, that's not okay to do. And she she finally said to me, you know, just just let me speak my piece and know that this is not about you, but about how I'm processing. And then I could begin to, to understand that and then give that to her. And hopefully sometimes I do. But um, talk more about scripted automatic responses as it relates to trauma. Obviously, here at Restoring the Soul, we work a lot with trauma. This is not a program on that. But how does the Enneagram number interface with a person's automatic response of dysregulation or being flooded? Yeah, it's just going to really, I want to say, juice it up, jack it up, just increase. Um, So if a one... Uh, I can move off of the one. So let's say a four can be kind of reactive when um, when they're confronted on something. 
uh, traumatized four is going to be even more reactive. And so poor babies, they are getting double judged then when they really kind of need double compassion, double patience in listening. So the wounded, uh, the traumatized eight, who is going to be more aggressive when confronted, um, will be more aggressive um, because their little system is trying to protect them against getting traumatized again. The the defenses are going to just be extra bulked. Is that what you have experienced? Yes, I have. And I, I don't like to use the word trigger all the time, so I'll use the phrase you just alluded to, and that is the nervous system. The nervous system in the individual who's traumatized will be more sensitive and more prone to escalate or to withdraw, to go into the classic fight or flight mm-hmm. response or yeah, the, exactly. the freeze response, mm-hmm. which oftentimes looks like mm-hmm. uh, shutting down mm-hmm. or numbing out. There's two thoughts that I have as we wrap up here. We just have a few minutes left. Um, as we're talking about this and understanding how our partner does conflict, it makes me think that conflict is seen as a negative much of the time. Uh, either something to be won or something to be avoided or, you know, kind of a a cross-examination win-lose proposition. And conflict is really just a part of any relationship. And I, I think I lived with this idea so long in my marriage that there would come a moment or a day when I would read a book or get enough counseling sessions and I would be able to avoid conflict. But that's not the case. No, conflict is just house cleaning, um, I call it taking out the trash, basically, that oh, you have. I love that. You just got crap that piles up in the kitchen or in your living room or bedroom or wherever. And if you pretend like it's not there, it gets bigger and stinkier. And um, But if you deal with it and you say, okay, we've got some trash we need to take out. Um, is it okay if we schedule something? Can we talk about this dynamic between us? later on we've always got parenting dynamics can we talk about our parenting stuff um on thursday night yes we should totally do that okay that's when we're both really grounded and doing great that we have that kind of um stance towards it but um yeah there's a lot of work that goes into staying grounded and doing the just the the marriage maintenance work of removing the conflict but then you know i mean it feels so good once you've cleared it out of there then you just you can feel so much more free and open and relaxed and kind and that's my second point that we'll wrap up with and that is that many people have experienced conflict as a loss of mm-hmm. relationship conflict leads to disconnection, to abandonment, to diminishment, to wounding, to shaming, and the list could go on. Mm -hmm. But how you're talking about it, and a phrase that I'll often use, is that conflict doesn't have to be a barrier to intimacy and connection. It can actually be a bridge. It Mm -hmm. can be the very thing Mm -hmm. that leads to more Mm -hmm. of what we actually want. Yeah, absolutely. That goes back to that economy idea that we were talking about um, on the last one, that if you have an economy of negativity, of tearing each other down, of scorekeeping, of pointing out flaws, then conflict is going to be a huge barrier to connection. But if you have that economy of giving the benefit of the doubt, of seeking to understand one another, then conflict is just going to be a much more brief, this is theoretically, of course, challenging exercise that you walk through and then get back to the good stuff. I said, we got to get this junk out from 
from between us and then we get back to connected again and you're preserving that economy of of goodness between the two of you. Kelly, good stuff today that we're talking about. This is the second of five episodes on the Enneagram in marriage, five ways the Enneagram can strengthen your marriage or intimate relationship. I look forward to conversations three, four, and five. So thanks so much. Sure thing. Thank you so much for having me. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.